Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. We start with the BC government's new program here to help low-income families uh, get through the uh, rest of the school year here with the high inflation that we're seeing in our economy uh, right now. Uh, the program was rolled out a few weeks ago. The Student and Family Affordability Fund, that is the name of this program, $60 million in this fund. The money has been distributed to school districts. They have to decide for themselves how to distribute this money to people who need it there are lots of different ways that schools are doing this. Some of them are pretty weird, in my opinion. Got Cindy Dalglish standing by. First, have a listen to Chris Schultz Lawrenson, BC Confederation of Parent Advisory Councils, describing how this program works here. It's going to be up to each district and each school community um, to, to put those funds forward. So we really encourage families who can use those funds, uh, not just for the beginning of the school year, but throughout the school year, uh, to reach out to your parent advisory council, to your principal, to your teacher, and just say you could use some of that support. Uh, those funds are available and we need those funds used. We know a lot of kids can use them uh, just, to, just to support um, what it is that they're doing. Okay, look how some of these schools are doing this, though, how they're distributing this money. Take a look at the letter that went home to kids at the University Hill Secondary School on Ross Drive in Vancouver. Okay, look at this. It says, as part of the program, we are going to send home with each student a $50 Save on Foods gift card in a sealed envelope. Those gift cards are going home with students today. And then it says, if the family decides they would like to pass this gift card on to another student, please re return the gift card to the school accountant. Why would they do that? I mean, if, if this is supposed to help needy families, why would you give a $50 gift card to every kid in the school? Not every kid would need it, would they? Let's check in with Cindy Dalglish now, education advocate. She's been tweeting about this one. Hi, Cindy. Good morning. What do you think of this program, first of all? Good idea? Yeah, I, I think it's a stopgap measure that the ministry has put out to support families within the school system. So, you know, there's always every year there's families that are identified that may not be able to feed their kids the amount of nutritious meals that they need or they cannot afford school supplies. And the schools and the districts are already uh, supporting that. Sometimes it is at a district level. Sometimes they're taking it out of their budget. And sometimes it's, uh, unfortunately, the educators in the building who are pooling money together to make sure the kids are getting what they need. And so this measure, knowing how expensive groceries are getting, school supplies, everything's getting more and more expensive. It was a, it's a, I, I would call it a quick win for districts and schools and families to to get that little bit of support that they needed. Right. Okay, but what about a school that decides to distribute the money this way? Say we're going to give every kid in the school a $50 gift card from Save on Foods. Does that make any it, sense to you? No, it, it makes zero sense. And, and just to make sure your listeners are aware, they have backtracked. Um, and they are pulling that back. They are not giving out the $50 gift cards and have asked families that may need some support to reach out directly to them. 
Um, so that's that's the right course of action. But it, you know what it what it ends up ta- what we end up talking about is that equity versus equality piece. And you know, fair is everybody gets this fifty dollar gift card, which is problematic. First of all, when you're talking about a, a wealthier area of the city where there is a good chance that there's still a handful of people within that school community that do need additional support. But those families are well identified, usually by the district, by the school level. There's always some line. There's there's the child and youth care workers. There's social services are involved. The, the school is aware. These families can be identified. And if there's additional families that need support, those letters are meant to support people calling in and saying, hey, I hear there's a bit of funding. We're really struggling this month. Can I get some help? That's what yeah. the original intent was. And for them to just hand out $50 gift cards, you know, to a family that might be driving a Maserati versus the family who can't even afford to take the bus, it's completely inequitable. And then you look at the gift card itself. It's $50 to save on food one of the most expensive grocery chains in Canada. And it, the money just does not stretch. So just the, the inability to understand the difference between equality and equity, this is such a prime and easy example that yeah. our, our schools should know better. Yeah, I, I'm glad to hear they're backtracking on it because this doesn't yeah. make any sense at all. Like, okay, if you're going to give money to families that need it, poor, struggling families, I can understand that. But to say that we're going to give a $50 gift card to every kid, and if you don't need it, you know, send it back to the school office, like, <laughs> come, come on. There's got to be right? there's gotta be a better way. I mean, it just seems to me like this is an example of a maybe a government's got more money than knows what to do with. Like, couldn't they figure out a better way to, to target these funds? You know, there, there is something to be said for that this is just a small measure versus the systemic issues that are, are facing families today. Um, and I, I think that there's room to be said for both. So I, I do appreciate that this initiative was there to just the immediate pinch of the inflation and economy situation. This helps because it's quick and it, it's, it's right there right now. Yeah. The systemic issues are there. They need to be addressed. Absolutely. And it should not be on our educators and our school systems to, to support that. That is not their lens. But the reality of the situation is, is that admins in schools, the youth workers in schools, the counselors in schools and teachers, they are identifying these children that are going without. And therefore, we also need to support them in that moment. So you kind of have to look at it in both veins. But, yeah, there's always room for improvements, uh, especially when it comes to students and our, our school system. I did hear from some school districts who said that they were not given a lot of advance notice about how this program was going to work, how the money is supposed to be distributed. They were just given this this pot of money and said, here, you deal with it. Give this out to whoever you think needs it. And some schools are like, that. yeah. I don't understand that because it was announced at the end of August that this money was coming. They have a whole year to use it. So it's not like they had to uh, use it right the second. They have time to use it. And the majority of districts would already have programs in place for this. So this is just enhancing and supporting the work that's already being done in districts and within schools. You know, I, I live in Surrey, and if you look at 
the the difference between where my child might go versus somebody else's child might go, there could be a, a complete swing in we may only have a few families identified, but another school in the same district will have a hundred families that need this support. Sure. And they'll know that at that school level. So it does not make sense to me that I'm, and I've heard that too a little bit. It's like, well, this is a, this was a problem from the get go. It, it was not a problem from the get go in that this is a systemic issue that districts are already working with as it is. And this is just to try to support them to do that a little bit more. All right, let's talk about this super difficult metro rental market now. If you are looking for a decent, affordable place to rent, you have my sympathies because it's a jungle out there for sure. Rents are up, vacancies are down, tons of online scams and ripoffs out there targeting people looking for a place to rent too. Rents are super high. At the same time, inflation and the cost of living is soaring too. Help is on the way here. Uh, federal government has announced a $500 one-time benefit, but it's only for low-income renters. We'll tell you about that in a sec here. Have a listen to Randy Boisenau here, the Associate Finance Minister. This means a one-time payment of $500 to 1.8 million Canadian renters who are struggling with the cost of housing. And as Minister Hussein said, this is an important support at an important time. For Canadians who need this support the most, the most vulnerable Canadians, the three measures in the bills we introduced today represent new money for them this year at the right time. Okay, let's check in with Robert Patterson now. Robert is a rental rights lawyer with the Tenant Resource and Advisory Centre. Hey, Robert, thanks for coming on again. Thanks for having me on. Okay, so this top-up for low-income renters, I'm taking a look at the the rules on this. You can apply for this online now, but man, yeah, you have to be a low income for sure. This is only for families that have a family income of $35,000 or less or an individual income of $20,000 or less. Wow, that rules out most people, right? What do you think of this program? Yeah, it's definitely a very targeted subsidy, uh, definitely targeted at low-income folks. And in fairness to the government, that is those people who need this most and I think would most benefit from, a, you know, a small subsidy of $500. Yeah. Um, it's certainly not, you know, it's not going to hurt them. And in many cases, people, you know, who are pushed with high rents, pushed with other rising expenses that have, you know, over the last year, um, it's it can be a nice top-up for them. It can will prevent some people from losing their homes, certainly. Um it, it's perhaps it's not the kind of uh, the grand scale solution, uh, but it's a band aid yeah. in sort of the intervening time. Right. Well, if you do fall in, uh, into that income category and, and you might qualify for this, the application, the online application portal for this benefit is is open right now, and you can apply through next next March. So, if you are in that category, I'd certainly encourage you to check it out. But obviously, the, the vast majority of people, I think, out there, Robert, would not not qualify for this benefit. And so let's talk a little bit about how, what they're going through. Like, what are you hearing from people right now with this rental market? Like, this is a super difficult situation we got right now, right? For sure. Uh, the way that rents have risen, you know, consistently above inflation, consistently above the limits that the province puts on them every year, uh, rent increase every year, has really made it very challenging for renters. Uh, it's yeah. 
in order to find something that is affordable, the definition roughly of affordable housing is it has to cost 30% or less than your take-home salary at the end of the day. Um, the amount of income that you'd have to earn to be able to find affordable units in, for example, Metro Vancouver is very, very high. Um, so in practical reality, people who are doing everyday jobs, who are um, you know, working downtown um, in, uh, you know, in retail and uh, service industry, very, very challenging for them to find things that are actually affordable. Um, and that has a lot of knock-on effects too, right? If you're a, if you're a tenant living in, in housing and, you know, you receive an eviction notice from your landlord, there not only is there this worry that, you know, you may lose your current housing, but there's a possibility then added on top of that, that you're not going to be able to find anything you can afford, perhaps in your neighborhood, perhaps in your community, perhaps in the lower mainland. Uh, and that adds a lot of extra stress to tenants. And, and, you know, we have data that shows that it's causing greater displacement from people from their communities. Um, you know, causing yeah. a lot of harm. Yeah, no, I think people are desperate for sure. Like I talked to uh, a listener of the show who reached out to me several weeks ago. Now he lives with his mom and they had a spare room in the house. They decided to rent out and he was astonished by the reaction he got to the online listing. When he put it up on Craigslist, like his phone just didn't stop ringing from people who were desperately looking to rent out this room. Like he was astonished. He knew it was bad but he didn't know it would be this bad. They eventually rented the room out to a, a young single mom because they decided to go with you know, the most desperate in need person who contacted them. Like, what are you hearing? Is there a lot, is there desperation out there? What are you hearing from people? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, desperation is a definitely a recurring theme. Um, whether it's someone looking for housing, someone worried about losing their current housing, uh, the current rental landscape is a very challenging place to find a home. Yeah. What about scams? You're hearing a lot about online scams out there. I want to play a clip here for you from uh, Rachel. Just use her first name here. She got she got scammed. She was looking for a place to rent in Victoria. We covered this story on the show before. She was shown a, a place that was for rent online. Actually went and checked the place out. The whole thing was an elaborate ripoff designed to get her money. Here's what she had to say, and I'll get your thoughts. We saw the place and we saw this guy multiple times he led us into multiple buildings um, the apartment was fairly priced and he called our references he gave me the keys and the fob the same ones that he used when we initially went there to view it and he said he would just be back in a moment yeah it turns out it was like an airbnb place that he was showing them and got their down payment and cash and then took off like Robert, what are you hearing about like ripoffs and scams out there? People have to be careful, right? Absolutely. Uh, I think in this kind of desperate situation, people are so eager for housing. There is, I guess, a greater market for that kind of scam, and, and people are adapting their tactics to try and, and catch people with that sort of thing. Um, for that particular story from Victoria, I think represents maybe one of the more elaborate uh, setups yeah. uh, that I've seen uh, or heard from from tenants. Um, I think there are there are some things that tenants can do to try and protect themselves, uh, taking that extra step. Things like you know doing a public title search of a property to make sure you know you're at least dealing with someone who purports to be the owner. Um, make sure the making sure the name matches, for example. Uh, but it, it is an abs- absolutely a challenge. There, there's going to be an element of risk. There's always an element of trust involved in in entering into any kind of contract, but especially a rental contract. Um, it's, 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 you know, there are certain things, always things that tenants can do to be safe and cautious, uh, but it's the sort of thing where, unfortunately, there is no way to remove the 100% of the risk. 
Yeah, there's a lot of scams out there. Robert Patterson is my guest, Tenant Resource and Advisory Center. What rights do people have if they've agreed to rent a place and then the landlord comes back and says, you know what, I just got a higher offer, someone willing to pay more rent, so I've got to jack the rent up on you. Like, I've heard that from people too. They'll Someone who thinks they have a deal, I'm going to rent this place, and then the landlord comes back and says, yeah, you've been outbid. So I need to charge you more. Do you still want the place? Are they allowed to do that? Right. It depends sort of what stage of the process that they're in. And I've heard similar stories from tenants who, for example, once they've sort of they've committed to a place and once the sort of landlord knows that they are they're lining everything up to move in, then they sort of try and boil the, uh, raise the temperature, uh, ask for increased rent or decreased rights during the tenancy. The sort of the question that you need to answer first is, has an agreement been reached? If a landlord and tenant have entered into an agreement, then at that point, no one side can unilaterally change the terms and say, I want more rent or tenant, I, tenant can't say I want to pay less rent. So then the question is, has an agreement been formed? Generally speaking, if someone signs a tenancy agreement uh, or if they pay a security deposit, that usually is typically sufficient evidence to prove an agreement has been formed. So once you pay a deposit or sign an agreement, uh, at that point, you can be pretty confident that the terms you've agreed to are locked in and one side can't push them up or, or, or try and play with them. Um, but there can be other situations too where someone can prove that an agreement has actually been made. Uh, it will really depend on the, on the specific the specific facts of the case. Um, but tenants absolutely have a right to sort of plant their plant their feet in the ground and say, you know, we've agreed to this number. I've already committed to moving in. You know, you're not allowed to now change this on me at the last second. Um, but it is the kind of thing that's not surprising. Uh, it's, yeah. not a, it's not a sort uh, of story to hear. It's not a not something that we hear infrequently. Uh, and, you know, it just goes to show again, like landlords, you know, there are people out there who know that people are desperate for housing and are willing to exert that kind of undue influence uh, and put that kind of unfair pressure on people to try and, you know, make a little more money. Premier David Eby has made housing a priority here. He says he wants to make rentals more available, more affordable. And one of the things that he did recently was change the strata legislation in British Columbia removing rental restrictions in condos so that basically all condos, all units would be available to rent if the owner wants to rent them out. Some There were some strata buildings and no rentals were allowed. You have to be owner-occupied. Not anymore. Everything will be available to rent if the owner wants to rent the place out. I wonder if you think that's a good idea. Let's have a listen to David Eby here explaining why he did this, and I'll get your thoughts. It is simply unacceptable that a British Columbian who is searching Craigslist for a place to rent can't find a home and somebody who owns a condo is not permitted to rent that home to that individual. Do you think this will make much of a difference, Robert? I mean, it's certainly going to add some units onto the market. And honestly, with the way our housing crisis is right now, any kind of assistance, any extra units on the market uh, are, are welcome, a welcome addition. Um, in terms of what scale we're looking at, it's hard to say I, our organization doesn't sort of have that sort of data for how many units will come onto the market. It, it makes sense from a common sense perspective as well. I think a lot of the times the ways that uh, the reason that shred uh, organizations might try to ban renters, you know, their concerns about renters not sort of being active members or contributing to buildings. You know, in my experience, you know, renters and buildings and renters and owners have sort of very similar rates of, uh, you know, they, people generally behave in their homes the way they behave in their homes, whether they're owners or renters. Um, 
I, I yeah, I, I think it's 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 a welcome change. How big an impact we, it'll have will remain to be seen. Um, but any units are any unit is a good unit at this point, uh, given where we are in the housing crisis. All right, welcome back to the show. Think about this question now: What would you do if your teenage son or daughter was addicted to drugs? but they refuse to go into drug treatment. This gets into the issue of involuntary care. Addicted youth, should they be forced to go into mandatory treatment? Is that where we should go in this province? This is a, an issue that's been kicked around in BC for a couple of years now. If you go back to 2020, the BC government actually introduced amendments to the Mental Health Act that would have allowed for involuntary hospitalization of a youth who overdoses on drugs for up to one week in order to intervene in, in a situation like that. Government backed down on it. There was opposition from civil liberties groups. Some indigenous groups also criticized it. Interestingly, David Eby, the new premier, has been talking about reviving this in, in some form, involuntary care. I've got Angie Hamilton standing by to discuss. First, have a listen to this story from global news reporter Kamal Karamali. You're going to hear about a mom trying to get treatment for her 15-year-old son who's addicted to opioids. Have a listen to this. I've asked for, begged for support from different government agencies, and no one would help him. No one would help him, and he's spiraled out of control. When she tried to admit him to a treatment facility, she said she was told her son had to agree to it. And they're saying to me that he has a choice and he needs to want to get treatment. And her son didn't um, want to go. Okay, 15 years old, getting into trouble with police, addicted to opioids, won't go into treatment. Should a child in that situation, a teen, be forced to go into treatment, mandatory care? Let's discuss it now with my guest, Angie Hamilton. Angie is the executive director, Families for Addiction Recovery. And I'm very pleased to welcome her. Angie, thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. I appreciate it a lot. Let's start, first of all, with mandatory or involuntary care. Do you support that concept? Uh, I believe it needs to be an option that's on the table. It depends on, obviously, the circumstances and the youth. Like, nobody's saying all youth, you know, who have a problem with substance use need mandated treatment. Um, but I also think it's true that if you say none of them do, that would be incorrect. Yeah, what are you hearing from people? Like, let's say, what do you think, what goes through your mind when you hear that mom, that desperate mom there? She's got a 15-year-old son who's addicted to opioids, getting into trouble with police. He won't go into care. And he, he want, and, there, and she's told that he has to agree to go into care. I mean, that's, I, I sympathize with her. What do you think of that situation? Uh, it's a situation I hear not infrequently because I do provide peer support to families across Canada. Um, and, it, and it's not just youth, by the way. It's, it's true with adults, but if we can't, you know, deal with it with youth. We're never going to deal with it with adults. Um, the you know, families have been dealing with this issue for decades. 
Um, it was looked at in Ontario in a, a, uh, a committee that, that traveled the province in 2010 to look at solutions. Um, and, you know, they basically said that we've created a situation where people have to be criminalized in order to get help. And that's yeah. exactly what that mother is describing. I mean, she probably could have told and probably did tell the police and others that her, her child, she knew, was engaged in criminal activities and that she wanted to be able to deprive him of his liberty in order to have him, uh, you know, be treated and, and become well and, you know, return to family um, uh, and not have to uh, have him criminalized to punish him for being ill. And our laws, you, you know, um, are ridiculous in this respect when in this situation we say, oh, no, no, no. Uh, you know, the priority is to criminalize your child, not to ensure yeah. he gets the help that he needs. Let's go back here a couple of years and listen to Judy Darcy here, Angie. Now, this was the government at the time here in British Columbia wanted to make changes to the Mental Health Act to allow for involuntary care of addicted youth in some cases. They introduced these amendments to the Mental Health Act and then later backed down on it. Let's go back two years here and listen to what the government wanted to do at the time. You're going to hear Judy Darcy here, who was then the Mental Health Services Minister. Let's have a listen. I'm pleased to introduce the Mental Health Amendment Act to establish short-term stabilization care as a means of improving the care and safety of youth immediately following a substance use medical emergency. This legislation will close an existing care gap by enabling the admission of youth for short-term involuntary stabilization care with the objective of reducing the risk of immediate injury, disability, and death. This will be for a short period of time and under strict conditions. Stabilization care under the Mental Health Act is intended to protect youth who present in the hospital emergency department in the midst of an overdose and to keep them safe in a designated stabilization care facility. Okay, that was a, a pretty bold idea there that met with a lot of controversy and the government later backed away from it. What do you think about that idea as she outlined there, Angie? And do you think they should have, do you think they should have gone through with it? Uh, I, I think it was flawed the way it was drafted. Um, but, you know, I'd like to refer to a public fatality inquiry report from Alberta in 2017, uh, where a, a judge who was looking at um, a situation where a 17-year-old had died um, from substance use in Alberta, uh, said it's time to recognize confinement for the purposes of stabilization of a child is insufficient, and confinement must serve the legitimate purpose of treatment, which will allow the system to better serve the long-term health of the child. Two to seven days uh, is not long enough. I mean, mm. you know, there's lots of research on this. And it, the fact that they were looking at this for just the tip of the iceberg, you know, kids who had, you know, overdosed. Uh, well, what about kids, you know, with cannabis induced psychosis, you know, most, most youth have a problem with cannabis and alcohol. Uh, some have a problem with other drugs. Um, but what about them? Like, you know, mm. it, to me, it's a question of 
when, when should we do this? And that was just too narrow. Like, what if they're going to be criminalized? Is that a better option? What if they're going to be homeless? Is that, you know, homelessness for youth is an adverse childhood experience. Um, so to me, it shouldn't just be if they're at imminent risk of death and it shouldn't be two to seven days. It, it needs to be much more. Is and there I any- acknowledge we, we don't have that now. We don't, we don't no. have those facilities. Yeah, right. Uh, is there any evidence that involuntary care actually works? Like, is it used in any other jurisdictions and is it working in any other jurisdictions? That is a great question. And that is the, the, the main criticism, I guess, of involuntary treatment. Um, and I hear it a lot. The truth of the matter um, is that there's a lack of high quality evidence to either support or refute involuntary treatment, and we need more research. Most of the research that has been done, it doesn't talk about the nature of the type of treatment. Um, uh, Often people did not receive evidence-based treatment. So for example, if their problem is opioids, they didn't get opiate agonist therapy like suboxone, methadone, which is the gold standard of care. So if people aren't getting evidence-based treatment, you can't conclude, you know, if it's not effective, if that's because it's involuntary or because they didn't get evidence-based treatment. They also don't get assessed for concurrent mental health conditions and treated for that in most of this research. And that's really, that's key because we know that the two things go hand in hand and we know that we're supposed to be treating both of them at the same time. Speaking of Angie Hamilton, Families for Addiction Recovery. This is a really interesting issue in British Columbia, especially with the new premier in place now, David Eby, who has talked a bit about involuntary care. I had him on the show recently, tried to pin him down precisely and how he, how he would do it. It's not clear precisely what sort of system he has in mind, but he does seem to be more open to it which is going to be interesting here going forward. Now, it's super controversial, though, of course. I mean, you get opposition from civil liberties groups. You get opposition from uh, some groups that advocate for drug users. Have a listen to this, Angie. I'll get your thoughts. So this is Dr. Paxton Bach, co-medical director at the BC Center on Substance Use. He is opposed to this forced treatment. Here's what he had to say, and then I'll get your thoughts. It's largely ineffective and actually might do more harm than good, both by, by forcing somebody into, into detoxification, loss of tolerance, and potentially increasing the risk of overdose upon leaving treatment, but also just in the damage that it does with somebody's relationship with the healthcare system as a whole. Okay, so he paints a very different picture of, of involuntary care, saying it actually could produce a worse outcome. People might end up overdosing as a result or distrust the healthcare system if they're forced into the healthcare system. What do you think of that argument? I, I think uh, there's uh, a tendency on the part of healthcare providers to forget about the impact on families. So the most important people in the lives of people with substance use disorder or their family and friends. And if you take a look at what's happening to those relationships, it's often the first casualty of a substance use disorder. So uh, while I understand the therapeutic relationship is important, it's not the most important thing. So if there is harm within the family unit because of someone's substance use disorder, you know, uh, for example, uh, you know, our, our children being abused, our children being neglected or spouses left, you know, uh, doing all the care for the children and, um, and providing for the family because the other person can't. Uh, those things are more important to me 
um, than the therapeutic relationship. And, and it ignores, you know, I think a lot of people tend to think, well, the alternative to involuntary treatment is voluntary treatment. And that is not the alternative because if they'd go that we wouldn't be looking at involuntary treatment. So what is the alternative? Well, the alternative is untreated addiction and mental illness. Well, what does that look like? Well, you know, why do we say it's important we have no wait time? for treatment because bad things happen when people wait for treatment. They commit suicide, they're criminalized, um, they, they die, they're homeless, they're, they're sexually exploited. You know, a mm. lot of bad things happen. These bad things happen as well if they're, they're not seeking treatment. All right, let's talk about auto theft. Have you ever had your vehicle stolen? Get set to call me on the open line later this half hour. I'd love to hear your story. It did happen to our family once a few years ago. The family minivan disappeared from our driveway. It turned out that the people who stole it were somehow, some way, able to hack into the keys and create a, a fake key. They got the data on the key. I don't know. Still a mystery to this day how they did this. They stole our van. We got it back a few days later. Talk, taking a look at some of the most targeted vehicles that are stolen in cross Canada. We'll talk about that today and how auto theft is now going high tech. Forget about hot wiring a vehicle. That is old news. Today, we're going to go inside the new world of high tech auto theft. How thieves can use computers to hack your key fob and steal your car or truck. Very quickly, I got Sid Kingma standing by. First, have a listen to this report from Global News. Dealing with stolen cars, nothing new for police, but this is another level. I was surprised because I know that these cars can be stolen in this manner, but it shocked me to see how quickly, simply, this happened. Forget about prying open the car door or stealing keys. This carjacking operation works off a couple of iPads in a backpack and a cable antenna known as a signal booster. Watch how quickly it happens. The cable is hung by the front door. It detects the key fob inside the house, records the code, then that code is used to start the vehicle, and within 18 seconds, the car is gone. The cars are being exported out outside of Canada. Okay, 18 seconds. Forget about gone in 60 seconds. They can steal your vehicle in 18 seconds. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Sid Kingma. Sid is the Director of Investigative Services for the Western and Pacific region. He is with Akite Association. That's a, a national group that battles insurance crime and fraud. Sid, thanks a lot for coming on today. Uh, thanks for having me, Mike. Appreciate it. Yeah, you, you bet. Like, it's pretty wild how these car thieves can now hack into your key fob or they can download the data from your key fob, even from outside your house. Wow. How, how much has this changed? How quickly has this changed and gone high tech? Yeah, I mean, we've seen a rapid change. You know, in 2007, um, it was mandated federally that by Transport Canada that all the vehicles, um, you know, had to come with security where that you needed a chip key to start the vehicle. And and this has sort of a, been a workaround by the bad actors out there, um, how to start the vehicles without that chip key. So, um, yeah, it's pretty surprising how quickly that can happen by them stealing the uh, RIFD uh, signal from your key fob to open and uh, unlock and start your vehicle and drive away. And yeah, 18 seconds is uh, really, really fast. 
Man, oh man, that's pretty wild. Like in that story we just heard from Global News there, when you when you see the, the surveillance video that goes along with that story, you see these guys, mm-hmm. you know, kind of, they got their faces covered, they kind of come up this driveway, they got a backpack with computers and stuff, and one guy holds up like some sort of little antenna or something, yeah. and it's, it's able to read the key fob inside the house. Yeah, it's a, it's a, a range extender, basically. It, it captures wow. that key fob um, giving out its signal, and of course, it's a proximity. That key needs to be close to the vehicle in order to start it or unlock it, so this just boosts that signal so the vehicle thinks that the, via, the, the key is close by, so that's why it'll unlock open and start yeah, and would this obviously? I'm just thinking about sort of later model, newer vehicles that have like a push a push button ignition on the dash. Is that typically the type of yeah. car that is vulnerable to this? That's exactly it. Yeah, without yeah. that sort of push button start, uh, that that wouldn't work. It doesn't work because you yeah. actually physically have to put the key in the ignition and cycle it. Okay, Sid, where do these stolen cars get end up? Because I know sometimes. People will go, I, I guess, go on a joyride. I mean, I guess that that's what happened to our family minivan several years ago. They found the yeah. the vehicle several, a couple hundred kilometers away. Someone had stole it and then just ditched it. But I, I guess it could end up in a local chop shop. But t- talk to me a little bit about this international market. Like, especially if you have high-end vehicles get stolen in Canada, they sometimes get smuggled out of the country, right? Yeah, that's absolutely true, Mike. Um, you know, I think these organized groups are going through the trouble of, uh, of the, that sort of high-tech theft. That's not generally going to be uh, just a joyride or just using the vehicle for transportation. Those are usually more crimes of, um, you know, that the, the vehicle just happens to be running with the keys in it and they jump in and go for a ride to wherever they need to get to. But these ones were that are planned, you know, they specifically target these higher-end vehicles. Uh, yeah, the organizations are are shipping them out of the country. And, you know, we, we do have investigators... Um, you know, in uh, the ports of Montreal, and they do intercept some of these vehicles, but I'm sure it's just a small percentage. We don't know all the numbers that are leaving the country. Um, but yeah, they're headed overseas. And it's, uh, it's really, you know, it's economics, it's supply and demand, because those Canadian vehicles, those high end Canadian vehicles that are leaving the country um, can command a higher price uh, in other countries than they actually do here. Yeah, what countries do they typically end up in? I guess they can go to any number of destinations. Yeah, we see them, um, you know, many countries, there's European countries, there's, uh, there's uh, North and West African countries, uh, the Middle East. So, uh, you know, it's all over the place. Is there any way to protect yourself against these type of high tech vehicle thefts? Like when you hear about these bad guys who can download the data from your key fob from outside your house, I got an email from a listener here this morning saying that, there are ways you can protect yourself. Put you can put some sort of bag in your house, put your key fob in it that, that doesn't transmit outside of your house. Have you heard of that? Yeah, absolutely. They're called uh, Faraday bags. Uh, wow. So basically, that that bag, that Faraday bag, will block uh, the R. RFID uh, signal from your key fob from getting outside of the bag. So there's uh, there's no way that they can intercept it or pick it or amplify it uh, to open and start the vehicle. So that's probably the best uh, course of action. They make boxes as well. So if you wanted to yeah. hang all your keys in one of those boxes that just protect the signal. Sid, you're a uh, director of investigative services there. How how simple is it for police to crack these cases? Like once a car has been ripped off like that, especially if it's being targeted to be 
shipped out of the country to some black market are those are those vehicles difficult to recover yeah you know i i don't want to speak on behalf of the police um yeah. but uh you know i i will say that it is difficult because these groups are organized and they have you know they have relationships uh, as well just like we all do you know and uh you know they specifically target vehicles and you know they have a destination in mind and they have uh, relationships with those people in those destinations so you know everything's well organized and um yeah, they just know what they're doing. And so it's it's hard for police, especially going across those international borders and, and just uh, the cooperation that's required to investigate something that to, like that to the end. What are the trend lines on auto theft right now in, in Canada or in, in B.C., if you know, is this, is this going up or more cars being stolen? Yeah, it's, it's funny that you mentioned that because I did uh, ask one of our data scientists just to kind of look at the B.C. numbers um, as far as the the. The, the thefts that are reported to police, because uh, we can look at those numbers. And you know, 2019 in in British Columbia specifically, you know, there's about 65, just under 6,500 thefts overall for all types of vehicles. And then of course, 2020 when COVID uh, came in and and uh, hit it, this trend happened across the country where all the numbers dropped. But then in 2021, we've seen an uptick again. And then 2022 up to, um, you know, yesterday, I think he pulled the stats for me. And and uh, we are on a bit of an uptrend, you know, probably end up a couple of percent uh, higher than last year in BC. Yeah. So it, it is trending up again, um, but we're not quite at the 2019 numbers that we were at. Okay, well, that's a lot. That's a lot of stolen vehicles in British Columbia. This happens every single day. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, the good thing about uh, British Columbia, I mean, uh, when you compare it to the rest of the country or even the province beside you, you know, Alberta, um, your numbers per capita are actually a lot a lot lower than what they are in Alberta. Um, Alberta's per capita uh, vehicle theft rates are much higher and the recovery right. rates in, in British Columbia are really good as well. Hey, real quickly, Sid, you guys put out an interesting sure. list every year on the most the most stolen vehicle models, and I'm taking a look at the current list here, the latest list, and these are usually, obviously, newer vehicles get stolen the most, sort of later model. So let's look at the top mm -hmm. five here. Number one, the Honda CRV. Number one, yes. Number two, Lexus RX series. Oh, oh yeah, those are nice. The Ford yeah. 150 series, very popular truck in Canada, the Honda Civic, yeah. and the Toyota Highlander. I mean, obviously those are all popular models of vehicles. Does anything jump out at you, like about, about to explain what makes some models more attractive to to the uh, the thieves than others? Yeah, I, again, I'll just go back to the economics of things, supply and demand, right? So there's obviously demand for those vehicles somewhere. So uh, that's why we're seeing those ones stolen. Um, if you look at number two, if you have those numbers in front of you, you'll see the Lexus RX series. The vehicles insured on the road is actually quite a bit lower than those other uh, four, but the uh, number of thefts is quite high. So that your relatively relativity rate to theft rate is actually quite high for those ones, which is uh, interesting. Yeah. So if you have a Lexus SUV, be careful. They're looking for your car. They're looking to <laughs> rip you off. Hey, Sid, yeah, the thanks. Lexus RX. Yeah, yeah, you bet. Sid, thank you for coming on today. Very grateful to you. Okay, thanks for having me, Mike. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.